Well, good morning, Mount family. How are we doing today? You guys feeling good? Fredericksburg, online, Stafford. You guys look great, by the way. It is so good. I don't know if you know, but fall is here, right? Like you maybe like have your hoodies on and your long sleeves and just you're out doing all the fall pumpkin leaves kind of stuff. It's like a great time of the year. And so I'm just curious this morning as we kind of get ready to dive into fall, how many of you would say like, you're the pumpkin spice people. Any, anyone at all? Yeah. I don't understand you guys at all. <laughs> it literally is so overrated. So, uh, but hey, uh, that's awesome. We're so glad you are here. And so speaking of fall, like I know it's October, but uh, here, here's the real question, right? Fall is here. October's here. It's getting colder. How many of you would be bold enough and honest to admit you are already listening to Christmas music or you have already decorated your house? Go ahead. We, we won't judge you, at least not to your face. We'll judge you when we leave the room later. <laughs> hey, fall is here, though, and so we're so excited. If you are joining us for the very first time today, we are in a new series titled Money Talks, and we are talking about money. Surprise. And so I'm excited, and because uh, the, one of the things I love about this as we dive into this, and so I'm just curious, kind of across all of our campuses, and so I need your participation. How many of you would say, like, if you were honest, if you were being transparent here, you would say that when it comes to money, I could use a little bit more. Just, just a little more would be enough. Hands all over the room, yeah. And so what I love about this is as we dive into this, the majority of us would say, yeah, I could use a little more. Like, just, just a little more would be better for me. And I get it, right? Like you're here and we're, we're talking about money. And the weird thing is like when you talk about money in church, people get kind of weird. And maybe you're here and like you might be one of several people, right? Like some people, you're like, okay, maybe, maybe it's your first time at the Mount. Or maybe it's like your, your second or third time. And you believe deep in your core that the church only wants your money. And so this, this morning, just sort of affirmed your fear. You're like, see, you're elbowing the person next to you. I told you we shouldn't have come back to this place. They just want our money. I get it. I do. I really do. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're really skeptical. Uh, maybe like the mount is your church home, but you're skeptical because you believe deeply within you that the church needs to focus on spiritual things. And like my job as the pastor is really to just preach the gospel and I need to stay out of your financial business. And you believe that and I get that, I really do. Or maybe you're here and you heard we were talking about money and you're like, you know what? I'm glad I'm here. I need this. Like, my finances right now are in a mess. We're struggling. Like, we're, we're terrified of a government shutdown because we couldn't make it a week without it. I get it. I do. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I, we're okay. And so you have already kind of like whispered to the person next to you, I think we can miss the next couple weeks and we'll be fine. So... I get it, I do, right? Like, when it comes to money, when we talk about money in the church, people just, it's a weird topic. And here's what's interesting to me. It's one of those topics that so oftentimes is neglected in the church world, but it's very, very unfortunate because when you think about it, money, we interact with it in every single aspect of our life every single day. In fact, you, you could even argue this. You could say that money and life are intertwined. You, you, the, there's, not a, there's not a facet of your life. There's not a, a day of your life, a moment of your life that goes through where you are not in some way, in some form of fashion or another, interacting with money in some fashion. 
It's deeply intertwined. As much as we wish we could be like, no, I don't think about it. I'm homeless. I live under a bridge. I want nothing to do with money. You still are probably having to ask people for money. You still have to interact with it in some way or another. Why? Because here's what I know about money. It is so deeply intertwined in our life that you and I, whether we want to admit it or not, we are in a relationship with money. We are in a relationship with it. There is this intimate connection to it that we deal with on a deeply daily basis. And so knowing that we're in a relationship with money, the question that I've been wrestling with over the last couple weeks is this question is, what sort of relationship do you have with it? What sort of relationship do you have with it? Maybe you would say, I have a great relationship with money. Like you don't lie awake at night thinking about it. You're not really stressed about it at all. You get along with it. It doesn't frustrate you. It doesn't worry you. You would say like, man, Adam, my relationship with money is better than my in-laws. It's so good right now. That's congratulations. Statistically, that's probably not the case though. Statistically, in the United States, the majority of us have what I would say is a somewhat dysfunctional relationship with money. According to a recent CNBC post, Listen to this, 90% of Americans say that money has an impact on their daily stress level. Another stat, 65% of people say their financial difficulties, whatever that means, are piling up so much that they don't think they can overcome them. And here's what I know. From time after time, after years of being a pastor, is, is the same way that a dysfunctional relationship with another human being can devastate your life, a dysfunctional relationship with money can have a devastating impact on your life. And you're like, whoa, like that feels dramatic, Adam. Like, is that just for effect up there? What, that, that feels, no. Just recently I had a conversation with a guy in my office. And this guy, let me just give you an example. This guy, he knows I'm sharing this story, but this guy, uh, he recently moved from out of state here to Northern Virginia. He said, when the state we moved from, my family, we were, things were going great. My kids loved their school. Like, my wife and I were connecting and communicating, and intimacy was thriving, and family time was fun, and it was, we weren't the perfect family, but we were a good family, and life was great. And then I got a job offer in Northern Virginia, and it was a 60% raise. And he said, we couldn't pass it up. Like 60%, that's a lot of money. And so he moved his family to Northern Virginia. And after just a couple months, he's in my office telling me, Adam, we're miserable. Like we're not getting along. We're fighting. We're arguing. I'm spending all my time working. And he said, I, he didn't say it, but he said it, it just feels like we're borderline depressed. He had a dysfunctional relationship with money that caused him to overvalue it and overemphasize it because he believed that more was always better. Money is an intimate part of our lives. And here's the difficult part behind this, is that we live in a world where whether we want to be or not, we are in a relationship with money, and money unfortunately talks, and it talks a lot. 
Money's always telling us something. It's always saying something. It's always trying to convince us. And as much as we want to say in the church world that money is neutral and that really money comes down to the person who's holding it, who's wielding it, whether it's used for good or evil. Yes, that's true. It's neutral. But money is also not passive. It is active because of culture and society. And money talks. And so that leads to the question is, what does money say? Like living in 2023 in the United States, what is it that money tells us? Money says, if you don't have enough of me, you're a failure. You're not successful. With me, you can be happy. So we find our, our worth, our value, our fulfillment, and our satisfaction, and how much we make and earn and save and spend and give, and all of our, all of our identity, all of our wealth, all of our worth and our value and significance is tied up into the number on that paycheck, the number in the bank account, the size of our house, or whatever it happens to be, because money tells us that you measure success through me. My money says, I, uh, like, you're supposed to hoard me. Like, like, you never know when you're going to need me. Like, like you, you may be going to work one day, and the next day the government shuts down, and you're, you're not ready for that. Or you may have a medical crisis that comes up, or there may be a recession, and the housing market crumbles. You need to hoard me. You need safety. You need security. You need to put me away in the bank and save me for that rainy day because I can give you comfort to weather the storm. Money says I need to be spent. Like you earned me, now spend me. Go use me, go have fun. And so we spend and we spend and we spend and we purchase and we purchase and we purchase and before long, we're drowning in debt over our heads. Money says, you earned me. You worked hard. You deserve this. I'm yours. And so we hold it tight. We use it for ourselves, selfishly not for others. Whether we like it or not, we live in a world where money talks. And so what happens when we grow up in a world where money talks and we listen to what it says? Just listen to these statistics. The average household debt, not counting mortgage in the United States right now, is around $80,000. The average household income is $75,000. We spend more in debt than we make. The number of households living paycheck to paycheck is somewhere between 55 and 62%. I mean, just think about that. If our church is average, that means half of you, if you lost your job next week, you would not be able to pay your rent, your mortgage, or your car in November. That's normal. That's average. I don't know about you, but it seems like normal isn't working. It seems like what money says in society, what culture accepts what money says, isn't really working. It's not working. It's not great. It's not good. Because all it's leaving us, if you think about it deeply, when we listen to what money says, what we find ourselves with is we find ourselves in debt, fighting with our significant other, arguing about it. We lay awake at night worrying about it. We're calculating, finessing it, moving it, spending it, trying to make sure it lasts when we need it. And we allow it to dictate our emotions. Our days are good based off of it. Our days are bad based off of it. We allow money to speak and have so much power in our lives. But here's what I find fascinating. Not only does money talk, but scripture talks as well. 
And it's interesting to me that the Bible says quite a bit about money. And in fact, I don't know if you know this, maybe you're kind of new to church, but in the Bible, there are over, like it's loaded with all these like powerful teachings about money. And just to give you some idea, there are over 2,300 verses, that's 2,300 verses about money and possessions. And I can tell from like the lack of shock you have right now, that, that, that means that you're like, I don't know, is there like 20, 20 million verses in the Bible? Is that a big number? Yes, it's a big number. Like 2,300 is a tremendous amount of verses in scripture that deal with money and possessions. Just to put this in context, that is four times more verses than faith in the Bible. That is four times more verses than prayer in the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about money and possessions. In fact, in the Gospels alone, the first four books of the New Testament that talk about the life of Jesus and what he did, what we see is that Jesus, uh, more than any other topic, money was his favorite topic. And in fact, 15 to 18% of everything that Jesus said was related to money and possessions. Two-thirds of his parables, or the stories that he told, dealt with money and possessions. Money was a significantly important topic for Jesus. And so this begs the question, and maybe this is just me, this, this begs the question, though, is what does Jesus know about money that we don't? Like, what did Jesus know that it was so important that he talked about it so much? Two-thirds of every story that he told, 15 to 18% of everything that he talked about was about this topic. What was so important that Jesus decided to spend so much time and so much energy talking about it, this topic that is so often neglected and passed over in the local American church? What did Jesus know that we don't know? If you're taking notes, you might write this down. There is a connection between our money and our spiritual lives. There is a fundamental connection between the way we spend and think about money and our spiritual lives. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says this, for where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. Now, maybe you guys are much smarter than I am, but I remember for years when I would read this verse, I, I thought this verse meant, okay, like where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like I thought that meant that what I thought of, what my heart went towards is where I would spend my money. If I thought of orphans, I would spend my money on orphans. If I thought of my wife, I would spend my money on my wife. And it was wherever I thought, wherever my heart went, my money would follow. And I believe that for the longest time, but that's not what Jesus says, is it? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, your money follows your heart. Your heart follows your money. And in other words, what he's saying is he's saying, listen, if you spend your money on yourself, your heart thinks about yourself. If you spend your money on stuff, your heart yearns for stuff. If you spend your money on earthly things, you think about earthly things. Why does he say this? Because... How we handle money. Remember, there is a fundamental connection between it and our spiritual lives. How we handle money 
is a mirror into our soul. It, it shows us and the watching world what we really believe. You see, money has the power to tell people watching, do I really trust God or am I afraid? Money has the power to tell the watching world, God's in control or I'm in control. Money has the ability to tell the watching world, it truly is better to give than to receive. There is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and money. Another great example, just three verses later in verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he tells us those two masters. He says, you cannot serve both what? He says, you can't serve both God and money. And this feels pretty extreme, right? Like Jesus is like, hey, you can't. It is physically impossible to serve God and to serve money. And you're like, whoa, 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 Jesus, that feels like very, very like extreme, very dramatic, uh, kind of out there. Why would you say something so harsh like that? And I think it's because Jesus understands something about money. Remember, there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we spend and think about money. And what Jesus is alluding to here is that both of these things, both money and God, make claims upon your life. Think about it this way. If you read the Bible, for those of you that are familiar, if you begin in Genesis and go all the way through Revelation, all 66 books, all 27 of the New Testament, what you find is over and over and over again a God who is making some significantly important theological claims on your life. Claims such as, I will complete you. God claims, I will complete you. I will give you identity. I will give you Security, I will save your soul. It's interesting to me that money makes the same claims. I will complete you. I will give you identity. I will give you security. And I can save you. It's as if Jesus knows God and money are both trying to make the same claim on your life. And you can only trust in one. You can't serve two masters. There is a fundamental connection between how we spend, think, save, and earn money in our spiritual lives. Because, and this is not something I really like to hear, so it's hard enough for me to say it too. Money is the most tangible way we can gauge our spiritual progress. What do I mean by that? Money is the most tangible way that we can evaluate and measure what we believe to be true about God. We can look at our bank account and we can say everything we want about God. But how we spend our money is the visible, tangible reality behind it. There is a fundamental connection between how you spend, think, save, earn, and your discipleship journey. And so here's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. We're going to dive into this topic. 
And so today, we're just going to kind of lay some groundwork, some foundation that we'll build on. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get incredibly practical. We're going to talk about uh, spending and saving and giving, and we're going to give you some tools and some resources and talk about what it might look like for us to kind of live in some freedom and live in that. But here's my challenge to you is over the next three weeks to commit to being here every single week, even bring people outside of the church that don't know about Jesus, because I think what I believe deep in my core is that when we as human beings When we begin to to manage our finances and to live with, with our money and the relationship we have with it in a biblical way, what we will find is we will experience tremendous freedom, tremendous satisfaction, tremendous joy and purpose and fulfillment because, because your money is a window to your soul. And helping you live biblically in this area is not something I want from you. It's something I want for you. I want you to be people who are free, who are satisfied, who are happy, and who have purpose, who are not stressed and worried and anxious. So let's dive in. Uh, King Solomon in the Old Testament was the richest guy to ever live. Like if you were to look at like modern statistics and compare his wealth to like anyone now, it's like a ridiculous, like he was way more richer than anyone who's ever existed even now. Like the, the amount of money this guy had was ridiculous. And so when he talks about money, it's probably a good idea to listen to some things he says. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. And if you've never read Ecclesiastes before, I just want to preface you, it's kind of a downer of a book. Um, like, you're going to see the word meaningless a lot. of you. This isn't like the, like, I'm really looking forward to a morning devotional to pump me up for the day. Just don't, just kind of skip this book and find a different one for your mornings like that, right? So, but listen to what he says. He says, he says whoever loves money never has what? Yeah. All right, so I've been here like over a year now. And so the, the bold means like participation. <laughs> like, we, we, we're doing this every week for the new people because I know the people who go to the mount, you, you're saying it loud. So let's just try this again. I really need you guys to own this. Whoever loves money never has what? Enough. Ooh, that's not fair. Whoever loves wealth is never what? Satisfied. With their income. <laughs> he says, listen, people who love money never have enough. People who love money need a little more. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, thank the Lord, that's not me. I don't love money. Do you? Just 21 minutes ago, I asked you a question. How many of you could use a little bit more? And you all raised your hands. Maybe this would be a good time for you to turn to your neighbor and be like, he got you. And then turn to the other neighbor and say, he got you too, right? Like, Because if we're really, really honest with ourselves, we might not say we love money. Because you might not. That's true. I I don't know you. But I think a lot of us would say, I don't have enough. And I could use a little more to be satisfied. Right? When you love money, you never have enough. Why? Because money says... Chase me. 
money says, chase me. When my boys were younger, they're 12 and almost 10 now, but when they were younger, they loved to play chase. Any of you that are parents, you've played this, or if, you're, if you were a child once, so everyone watching and listening, you've played chase before. Like, it's not a complicated game. Somebody comes to you and says, chase me, and you chase them. So the way this would work with my kids is I would be doing something in the middle of something, and they would come and go, daddy, 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 chase me, and they would take off before I had a chance to answer. So obviously, as a good father, I delayed a while to let them wear out some energy. Then I would go and chase them. And if you've ever played chase, which we've already established, all of you have at some point in your life, when you play chase with a child, there's no end to this game. It's not like you catch the child and you're like, oh, I got you, and you tickle them and then walk away. Because once you catch them and let them go, they're gone again. And they're like, come catch me again, chase me. And so the game is literally a never-ending game where you chase them catch them, laugh, let them go, chase them, catch them, laugh and let them go. And it goes over and over and over. And I don't know about you, but it is exhausting to play chase with a child. Money says, chase me. So we work and we work and we hustle and we hustle. And honestly, doesn't it feel as if every single time we catch what it was we were chasing, the game starts all over again. It feels like a treadmill. Like we're just running and running and running. And no matter how much we crank up the pace, we're going nowhere. And it's exhausting. But we do it. Why? Because money promises something. It says, chase me, and I will give you happiness. It says, chase me, and I will make you happy. And my guess is, you understand this. We live in Northern Virginia, like we're all driven to succeed in life. It's just part of the culture here. We all have goals and plans and dreams. We all want to do something to make a difference. We all want to, like, get that promotion, get that raise. Some of you, you want to make such a difference. You're, you're literally laying down your lives for your country to do things. We all have this internal drive to make an impact, to be something of importance, of value, and of worth. And we do this, and we work, and we work, and we work, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive, and we run, and we chase, and we chase, and we chase. But here, maybe this is just me, but sometimes we get to the end of the day, the end of the month, or the end of the year or the end of a decade and we look up and what we realize is that everything we were chasing just felt empty right like we just we just thought like if I could just get more that'd be enough first Timothy chapter 6 it says this way it says those who what who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all, not money is not evil. Let's, let's make sure we say that through this series. Money is not evil. Money used in a biblical manner is an incredible tool given by God to his people to 
provide for their immediate needs, to help others, and to build up his kingdom. In the right hands, money can literally change people's eternity. But it is the love of money when we value money, when we want more and more, and we chase it and we chase it. That is the root of all kinds of evil because some people are what? They are eager for money. And because of their eagerness to get more, what have they done? They've wandered far from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And what Timothy's saying here, Paul's saying to Timothy, he's saying, listen, there is a danger in always chasing more. In fact, he would say the danger is that some people and their desire to get more and more and more They've literally given up on their faith. Why? Because money and God make the same claims on your life. And you got to choose one or the other. Which one do you love? Money says, chase me and I will make you happy. And so we pursue it. We want more and more and more thinking and believing, and I know I'm not alone in this, we, we think that if I can just get X, man, then I'll be good. <laughs> and then we get X, and it's like that child who takes off running all over again. We're like, okay, if I can just get Y, then I'll be good. And we're just chasing and chasing more and more and more. Question for you this morning, how much is enough? How much is enough? And I know for some of you, that's a really hard question. Because your mind may be thinking of a number. Like if I just, you know, like 100K, that's enough, man. Two, I, don't, I don't know your finances. You might be like, a million's enough. I don't know. It's like if I won the lottery, 1.4 billion, like that's enough. I don't, I don't know what's enough. But here's where I can promise you, almost every one of us would say, how much is enough? More. Because it's not a number. It's an attitude. How much is enough? More. And when we get more, 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 more. Even when we get what we're searching for, the fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose that we thought it would bring fades. I just wonder, and don't raise your hand for this because this would be incredibly embarrassing, so just think this in your mind, but how many of you you have everything by earthly standards, but spiritually you are just bankrupt. We live in the wealthiest country in the world, in the wealthiest generation to ever live. We can travel anywhere fairly cheap compared to previous generations and rather quickly compared to horses and buggies. We can communicate with anyone all over the world instantly we can do so many things. We have more discretionary time than anyone ever has. We have houses that every year, the square foot, the average is getting larger and larger and larger. We are abundantly blessed with more than any other generation has ever had. Yet, we are the most depressed and alone generation to ever live. Could it be could it be that our constant pursuit of more is leaving us broken, anxious, and depressed? 
how much is enough. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 17. Teach those who are rich in this world to be proud and not to what? Not to trust in what? Their money, which is so unreliable. Their, what their trust should be what? Should be in who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Money says, chase me and I will make you happy. And God says, I am enough. I am enough. Money says, chase me. And God says, I'm enough. Go back to Ecclesiastes 5.10 with me again. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And what you need to know about the book of Ecclesiastes is everything that Solomon is writing is about earthly, physical tangible things. He talks about women. He talks about money. He talks about fame. He talks about wealth. He talks about livestock. He talks about prostitutes, all of these things. And he says, if I could get this or this or this or this, it would fix. In other words, and this is what he says, what is wrong with my soul? And after he searches for every one of these physical things to fix what's wrong with his soul, he says the very same thing over and over and over again. This too is meaningless. In other words, and don't miss this, Solomon spent his entire life trying to fix an internal problem with external solutions. He thought, if I could just make my external things so much better, my soul will be content and happy and satisfied. You cannot fix an internal problem with external remedies. Jesus tells an incredible parable about this in Luke chapter 12. He says this. He told them a parable saying, here's what he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have... Nowhere to store my crops. In other words, he had an abundance. He had a lot. And he's like, man, I'm getting so much stuff. What do I do with this? And so he says, I know what I'll do. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all of my goods. So he says, listen, I've got so much. I've got more than I need. I've got enough, but it's still not enough. So what I'm going to do is my barn is overflowing, but I still want more. I'm going to tear down this barn and I'm going to build a bigger barn to put more stuff in and have more and more and more. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. And then he says this, he says, soul, he tells this to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Now you can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, he's talking to his soul, trying to convince himself, you can actually be happy now. You have enough. Your house will not fix your soul. Your bank account will not fix your soul. The paycheck with your name on it will not fix your soul. They are band-aids at best. Look at the end of the story. Verse 20. But God said to him, what do you call him? He calls me a fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, 
whose will they be? You were made for God. You cannot fix an internal problem with external remedies. All of the things you think you need, if I could get X, I'd be happy. If I could get Y, I'd be happy. If I could do this, I'd be happy. All of those things are band-aids at best. What you need, the thing that will fix your soul, the thing that will complete you, the thing that will make you happy is Jesus and Jesus alone. You were made for God. That's why God says, I am enough. I am enough. An internal problem can never be fixed by external remedies. Money says, chase me and I will make you happy. And God says, I am enough for your happiness. I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 6, we've looked at it several times. But Matthew chapter 6, there's this, this progression that Jesus does where he starts by talking about money. And he's kind of saying, hey, you, you have to pick one or the other. You can't serve both because they're both making these competing claims on your life. And he's hoping, which we all should, he's hoping that we agree to let God be the king and God make those claims on our lives, which Jesus immediately knows when we surrender that, we're going to say, yeah, but what about X? And we're going to begin to worry. And so he goes right from money and he says, therefore, and starts talking about worry. And he says, because you're submitting to God and you're taking your claims from him and he is enough, therefore you're gonna worry. And he goes through this passage, don't worry. And then he ends it by saying this. He says, and this is his advice. He says, because you're worried about money, he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will what? He will give you that you, not everything that you want, but everything that you need. In other words, write this down. If I chase money, I will never have enough. If I chase God, he will provide me with what I need. If you chase money, it is a treadmill that never ends. But if you chase after God, he will provide you with what you need because only he can fix your soul. Because money says more, more, more. God says me, me, me. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you and your wisdom and insight chose to speak so much on money. God, we acknowledge that it is a hard topic. It feels highly personal and private. That God, you are not afraid because you see the connection and the influence and the power it has in our life. This morning, as we continue in this moment, I just wonder maybe kind of to begin this series, how many of you would be honest real quick? And you would say, Adam, My finances are a little bit of a mess. I have a somewhat dysfunctional relationship with money. I want to be able to pray with you. And so maybe just kind of with everyone's eyes closed and heads bowed, if you would be willing to admit today that you need help with money, would you just raise your hand right where you are? Hands all over the room again. Let me pray with you. Father, 
I pray for every hand that is raised. God, that you would bring freedom. You would bring just peace. God, I pray as we go through this series that every one of us who struggles in some way with having a right relationship with money, you would begin to change our hearts from the inside out, to view it the way you view it, to be people who, as we've said, want to make a difference in your world through our generosity and our stewardship. As we continue praying in this moment at all of our campuses, maybe you're here today and when I, when I talk about the fact that you want to try to fix your soul with all of these external remedies and it's sort of what Solomon did that resonates with you like it did for me when I was in college. Let me, let me just say that I'm so glad you are here, but I also want to give you the good news is that everything you are trying to do to bring satisfaction and joy and peace and happiness will fail and fail miserably unless you surrender your life to Jesus and allow him to have control. And I'm not saying he's going to make you rich and famous and wealthy physically, materialistically, but scripture says that when you surrender to him, he will give you an abundant life a life full of rich emotions, rich blessings spiritually. And maybe today you want to make that decision. So just in the, the stillness of this moment, if that's you for the very first time in your life, you want to surrender your life to Jesus as King and Lord and Savior, will you just be bold enough to raise your hand? I see your hands. If you raise your hand, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I am a sinner. I need your love. Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. Be my king. Be my savior. Today, I surrender my life to you.